0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the Westside Audio Message Podcast. It says in that first verse, So the men of Keriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Gerim a long time, 20 years in all. Now I'll give you the background for that in just a minute, but let me finish reading this part. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. That's significant for what I have to say to you today. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and their ashtoreths and serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel and Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as a leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines, and said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the bird offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites." The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Now just to jump into a story like that without the context might be a little bit hard to follow. So my challenge right now and my intention is to give you enough background to run into this story so we understand what is happening and why it is happening at this point. Samuel, in this story, was a noted, trustworthy man of God, prophet to the people of Israel. But I want to go back to Samuel as a little boy when he was brought to the temple, dedicated by, dedicated by his mother, and put in the... the uh, oversight of Eli the prophet, and Eli, uh, the, the priest, pardon me, and Eli was not a stellar priest. He had some problems, especially the fact that he had a couple of sons that were corrupt, and he was unwilling to deal with the corruption of his sons because they were obviously his sons. So the the blood the relationship was more important to him than the essence of doing right and wrong. But nevertheless, at this point, before this was all exposed, Hannah brings the little boy to Eli and puts him under his tutelage. And Samuel is sleeping in the house where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. And he's disturbed or awakened or alerted in the night with a voice that he hears. And he keeps thinking that Eli is calling him. So this was, this was a very real experience for Samuel. And he jumps up and runs to Eli and says, did you call me? And after a couple of times of this, Eli says, I think maybe young Samuel, the Lord is speaking to you. So the next time you hear this voice, just say, uh, yes, Lord, what do you want? And see what happens. And I think it's amazing that Samuel, as a young boy, young lad, is being used by God at this stage of his life. It's really setting the stage for how his life would be powerfully used by God for the rest of his life. So the next time he hears this voice, he invites God. He says, God, if this is you, what do you want? And God speaks this incredible message to this young boy. A message he should have been speaking to Eli, but we, we have to assume that the conduit was plugged for Eli. He wasn't hearing from God. He certainly wasn't hearing from God concerning his corrupt sons. And he's not speaking through Eli. Eli's not listening, but he's speaking through this innocent boy. And this powerful, nation-changing, life-changing message comes from God through young Samuel, and God says in his very first prophetic word to Samuel, he says, I'm about to do something in Israel that's going to make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. Now, so far, we don't know if that's good or bad, do we? This was a bad ear tingle. This was not a good one. He says, I'm about to judge Eli and his family. Because he's allowed his corrupt sons to continue in the priesthood. And he's done nothing to stop them. Now this was the beginning of difficult times for Israel. As this prophecy comes forth against Eli. Against his family. And against Israel. And young Samuel not only hears this powerful word of the Lord. But he has this huge responsibility of going to the man who is his mentor. And saying, excuse me. The Lord spoke to me. He says, you're about to be judged. That's a difficult thing for this young man to do. So because of this judgment coming on Eli, coming on his family, coming on Israel, all revealed through this young prophet in training, Samuel, the next time Israel goes to battle against the Philistines, they were trounced and they lose 4,000 soldiers as judgment has now begun against Israel. Assessing their damage and analyzing their heavy loss, they reason that the thing they need to do is to go and fetch the ark and bring it physically into their company, into their presence. And therefore, next time they go to battle with this ark in their presence... They should get a victory. Sounded like a great idea. So they go and get the ark from its resting place where Eli is overseeing it. And Eli's two sons come with the ark, the corrupt sons. And there they are on the battlefield with Eli's sons and the ark. And they go to battle again. Now the Philistines see the the Ark of the Covenant. And they're smart enough to figure out there's something about the presence of God that you just don't mess with Israel when you have the presence of God. So they're talking among themselves, and they're saying, we don't want to become like the Egyptians because it was a well-known fact that the Egyptians went against Israel and went against God, and you know what became of them. And they thought, they've got the Ark. We don't know if we want to go against that or not. But somehow, someway through their deliberation, they ultimately decided, well, let's just give it a shot and see. And they did. And much to their surprise, the Philistines' surprise, they won. Because the revelation of this is that the mere presence of the ark did not guarantee the favor of God. When they were out of favor... You just can't have physical objects. Now, there's there's a lesson to that, that we all, you're probably way ahead of me. I'll give you the mic, you preach it. If you're walking out of favor with God, carrying your Bible everywhere doesn't do diddly squat. If you're out of favor with God, wearing a Christian cross doesn't mean anything. If you're out of favor with God, just going to church faithfully is meaningless. All these other things that we do thinking that we will gain God's favor will not displace the fact you must be in right relationship with God first and foremost. So they go to battle. This time they didn't lose 4,000. They lost 30,000 soldiers. The Philistines are elated. They thought they really overcame the odds. They didn't realize it was all about... The broken relationship of Israel with their God. Word is sent back to Eli. The ark we borrowed has been stolen. Now, if you borrow something from somebody, you don't want to go back and tell them it's broken or stolen. That's the reason I'm hesitant to borrow things. We've had people offer very generously to loan us things. And I'm very hesitant to take advantage of that. When we were in California... We were going to take a a trip, I believe it was to to Texas, or maybe it was our entire circuit. When we'd make the circuit on our vacations, we'd go back to Missouri and down to Texas and over to Arizona and back, and two-week trip, and I don't know how many thousands of miles. And one man in my church came up and he said, take my brand-new truck. I can just envision breaking that brand-new truck, Somewhere, uh, now, some of you may have jumped all over that because I've seen people of different personalities. They think, that's a great idea. But I couldn't do that. I said, I'm afraid I'll break it. He said, don't worry about it. Well, I was worried about it. Can you imagine? I want to borrow the ark for a minute. We've got a battle to fight. You come back and say, the enemy beat us and took it. How do you explain that to the priest? But it's worse news than that. It's not just the ark has been stolen. Your sons have been killed. And Eli, hearing this news, was sitting on a chair. We don't know exactly how this happened, but the brief description we have is he's sitting on this chair, and because of the devastating news, the loss of the ark, and the death of his own sons, it says he fell backward, and when he fell backward, he broke his neck. And he died, and the tragedy's not over. This would make a great soap opera, because his daughter-in-law, who's married to one of his sons, that was murdered. Now she she goes into labor. <clears throat> Eli passes out and breaks his neck, and the daughter-in-law goes into labor, and it's such a difficult labor that it ultimately takes her life. She delivers this child, and and the 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 ladies that are around her. realize that she's very despondent over the loss of her husband and they're trying to comfort her and they're trying to say well be of good cheer it's a boy you have to understand in that culture what that meant because it would have been great news to give birth to a a male child and just so so to give birth to a female but this was a male child so they're trying to cheer her up you had a boy Uh, let me see now uh my father-in-law is dead We've lost the ark. My husband's dead. You want me to be happy because I gave birth to a boy? And she decides, I'm going to name this child appropriately. And this was what was on the lady's heart when she said, I'm going to call him Ichabod. And, of course, the Bible reveals to us that the meaning of the name is the glory of the Lord is departed. What a powerful story that she realizes things are crumbling around them because the glory of the Lord is departed and having named the child Ichabod. Then she passes on. And this story, of course, has has been the foundation for many a sermon. As one of the things that preachers love to do is say that Ichabod is written on the door of this church. (laughs) There might be a congregation somewhere so out of touch with God that maybe in a sense Ichabod has been written on it. Maybe in a sense the glory of the Lord has departed. But the church of Jesus Christ will not bear the name of Ichabod. (laughs) The glory of the Lord has not departed from God's church. Maybe a local congregation But the one that Jesus said that he's going to build this church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. It will not allow the name Ichabod to be spread over the church. Now, we've got time for a little comic relief. I I don't know if this is true or not, but it's been told as though it were true. That the one preacher young preacher, trying to preach that common message, Ichabod, been written over this church. He got all excited, and he said, the glory of the Lord has departed from this place, and Michelob has been written over the church. <laughs> I, I, I think there's, I've seen a few churches where Michelob was written over the doors of the church. And the glory of the Lord had departed. The Philistines stole the ark, and they didn't know what they had. They thought they had something great, but they didn't know what they had. And they bring it back, and they set it in the midst of their camp. And they set it right up next to their god, Dagon, the idol. And the funny thing happens. I I love this story. They get up the next day, and Dagon has fallen over. And they set him back up. And they get up the next day, and he's fallen over. This time, his arms are broken off. His legs are broken off. You dare not set him up again. There won't be anything left of this Dagon. And, of course, the implication of the story is that nothing stands in the presence of God. There are no other gods before him or beside him or around him. There's only one true God. I don't know that the Philistines really got that message, but they realized something weird was happening. And after this experience with their own idol, bowing to the power of God in the Ark of the Covenant, then they began to break out in tumors. And finally, they got together and they said, "Uh, we, we have to do something. Things are just not right in this camp. And somebody made a motion, let's donate the ark to Gath. And somebody said, I second the motion. And they did. They took it and they gave it to Gath. Here, you can have it. Gath hadn't had it long before they began to break out in tumors. And for seven months, Gath wrestled with this until they finally figured out something's not right in this camp. What are we going to do about it? And they called in their seers and their wise men and their false prophets. And they said, what should we do with it? They said, well, go get a couple of milk cows and hook it up to this trailer. And by this time, uh, to a cart. And by this time, they had done this very weird thing that there's really no logical explanation for it. Except because of the tumors that they had done. They had taken some gold and their goldsmith had fashioned a couple of rats and five golden tumors and for some reason in their culture they figured that maybe that was somehow uh, going to be a memorial to what was happening them maybe it would appease the gods it's not clear it's not told why they did it but they did it and they made they made this 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 they got this cart they put the ark on the cart they got their milk cows and they put the rats and the and the tumors on there and, and they they whipped the cows and said go we don't care where just go and the cows, without any human guidance, just started walking away, and they thought we are done with that mess. And here's the people of the uh, of the company of Israel that are out working in the fields, and they look up and they see some cows pulling a cart, and they recognize that the ark is on the cart, so they get all excited. They're in Beth Shemesh, and they go around, and they start telling people the ark is coming down the road. I, I'd love, I love that sermon, don't you? And the people come out, and they see it, and just, just like pe- curious people do, they begin to check it out and look in it. And God killed 70 of them because they looked in the ark. I'll tell you what, this ark is problems for people who don't have the right relationship. God is problems for people who don't have the right relationship. People don't have a great respect for God when they're fighting against Him because He doesn't put up with their nonsense. But when they come into right relationship with Him, they realize He loves them and what He can do for them. When you're out of relationship with Him, oftentimes things don't go well. Seventy people died. Now the people of Israel, they don't know what to do with the ark. And they decided whenever I, as, as I read our opening verse, let's put it in the house of Abinadab and keep it there and just leave it. And they put Abinadab's son, Eliezer, to oversee it. And there it stayed for 20 years. Israel had lost the ark. Because they had lost the relationship with God. Israel gained the ark back, but they didn't know how to handle the ark. Because they were out of relationship with God. And here the ark is in Eliezer's house, but they don't know what to do themselves. And finally, they had come to the point, pushed to the point where as we started reading this passage of Scripture that formed the foundation for my sermon, it says they begin to Repent. What do you have to go through to get to repentance? What does it take to genuinely repent to God? And the people began to repent. And Samuel thought, you know, as I can see that their hearts are sensitive, this would be a great time to preach a sermon on repentance. This, this was the little boy that was awakened in the still of the night in the house where the ark was kept. This was one that heard that fateful message from God about Eli and Israel and the judgments were coming. Now the seasoned prophet sees the ark has come back and the people are disturbed. They don't know what to do. But they begin to turn back to the Lord. And Samuel says an excellent time for a message on repentance. And the Bible doesn't give us the entire message, but it gives us a summary of what he said to them. In essence, he said, get rid of your idols, commit yourselves to the Lord, and serve him only. And if you do that, the Lord will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Now, the message of repentance has always been an important part of the gospel. And it even precedes the gospel. The message of repentance is an important component of the history of Israel. The writings of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. And not only did Samuel preach this message of repentance to Israel. I can pull up other examples. One of them is Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Just listen, this, this is like theology straight out of the New Testament. If a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, and keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live and he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. And that's the part where it gets a little bit edgy, because this is the righteousness he has done, as though we're thinking that he earned it. But it just means the right thing he did by confessing his wickedness and by turning to the Lord. That is a solid message of repentance straight out of the Old Testament. And most of the Old Testament prophets preached repentance. John the Baptist emerged on the scene, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. You know what his message was? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus preached repentance. We think oftentimes that he's got all kinds of other messages and just kind of avoided repentance. But they came to Jesus and they were telling him about this incident that happened and and asking him, do you think that was fair? And should they have been uh, uh, judged or, or slaughtered like that? Should they have died? And Jesus said, you know, except you repent, you shall suffer the same kind of judgment. He didn't hesitate. Repentance. It is a vital part of the message that God once preached. But you don't hear much preaching on repentance today. We have feel-good sermons. We have positive mental attitude sermons. We have how-to sermons on everything from fixing your marriage to getting your healing to walking in victory to overcoming depression. And we have sermons on love thy neighbor. We have prosperity sermons. We have abundant life sermons. But we don't have too many repentance sermons. And we need repentance sermons in order to balance the gospel message. You don't hear a lot of television preachers that fire up their satellite and put their their video on there and they're preaching to the, 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 the listeners. Repent! For the kingdom of God is at hand. As a matter of fact, we can say today repentance is not politically correct. Because you're assuming somebody's wrong. And if you're assuming somebody's wrong, you're not being very fair to them. Who are you to judge? So how can we preach the message of repentance unless we realize that there is a certain judgment that goes along with this? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. How can you preach repentance unless you infer that people are sinning? How can you preach repentance unless you infer that there is such a thing as sin? That's something they're doing. We consider sin. And we're living in a day and age when that's not popular and it's almost not legal. How's the church going to preach the message of repentance in a day and age like this? Without risking something? Tax-exempt status? Or risk being sued? Or risk? Jail time or prison time for the messenger. So what are we going to do? Are we just going to shelf the message of repentance? It's valid and it's necessary for today. I know it runs against the grain of this politically correct society, but I'm here to tell you that simple repentance can fix a lot of things. And people are running around and trying to get experts to help them and psychologists to help them and counselors to help them. And uh, when the bottom line is, they just need to repent. Quit doing the wrong thing and take up the Lord Jesus Christ and start doing the right thing. It can fix all kinds of things. And it's free. It won't cost you $100 an hour. Just repent. I had a pastor in a community where I once pastored, a fellow pastor, that I had, I had to deal with a difficult couple of individuals in my church. And they would not take the correction because it's a whole lot easier just to pack up and move to another church than it is to submit to correction. So they ended up at this other pastor's church and one man that left that I had to deal with became his immediate worship leader and the second man that I had to deal with who this man was totally irresponsible with his money. He didn't make a lot of money anyway but whatever money he made he wasted on himself. He had a sailboat. He paid, he paid the uh, uh, docking charges down uh, at the beach on the coast on this sailboat. And he never paid his tithe. And he wanted to work in, in our church and be a leader of the youth. And I said, I cannot let you do that. You're not even paying your tithe. He said, well, don't worry about it. Me and the Lord have it worked out. So he left and he went to the other pastor's church. And he became the youth leader there. So I've got two men that I had to deal with issues that they found another place where they could be involved. And finally that pastor came to me one day and he said, you know, we've got to talk. He said, "Uh, do you have anything that you need to say to me? And I said, I'm glad that we've had this talk because a matter of fact, I do. I said, I had had to, to speak to a couple of men in my church about issues in their life that was not right. And they did not like what I had to say. I didn't kick them out of the church. They did not like what I had to say. They went to your church, and the next thing I know, they're leading your worship, and they're leading your youth. He said, what should I do? And I said, repent! And he did. And he began to weep. And he said, I'm sorry. He said, I I know now that I've done wrong. I said, then let's put the past behind us and let's get on. He said, well, from now on, he said, let's, let's communicate with each other when we've got some people leaving our church that don't do this church hopping and they don't play us like a cheap fiddle. And I said, good enough for me. And we became best friends. But, you know, you've got to confront people. If you've done something wrong, you, you can't get it right until the first thing you do is Repent. And I wish it was just as easy as saying I'm going to sit right here in my pew and I'm going to do all my repenting right here. But I'm telling you the truth of the matter is if you repent in secret, you can relent in secret. If you just sit there and say, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do it again and leave, it's probably easy to back out on your word. But I'm telling you, when you get up from your pew and you come down, you kneel down and you pray and somebody comes and pray with you and you tell them, you say, man, I've blown it. I'm wrong and I'm here to repent, not just get forgiveness. There's a difference between just seeking forgiveness and repenting. Seeking forgiveness means you just want to feel better about yourself before you go do it again. Repenting means I resign the sin business. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm making my declaration here at the altar. I'm making it before the people who are praying for me. I'm making it before God. I'm making it before the pastor. I'm making it before everybody out there that's going to talk about me. I repent, and I don't want to do this anymore. We need repentance. and Not just hidden repentance. Secret repentance. That happens every day that you live because you can't get by what you're doing. This message of repentance, going back to the Old Testament, I I just want to take you quickly through uh, another example of Old Testament repentance. Solomon, the illegitimate son of David, who inherited the throne, probably shouldn't have, but he did. He had promised Bathsheba, the woman by whom he had had this child. Her son was sit on the throne. So Solomon takes the throne. He starts off great. And he becomes king and he decides, my God is an awesome God. He deserves the finest temple on the face of the earth. And he invests the equivalent of billions of dollars into building this temple i don't have to go through all of the expense that they put into that you know that gold nails that were used how much would a gold nail cost today just make your own estimate and he built this temple and when it got done he said it's time for dedication service and he made the dedication speech and then when he got done with the speech they had built this bronze platform it wasn't a very high platform Just a special bronze platform. And the king himself steps up on that platform. And before the whole congregation who had gathered for the dedication of this temple. And it lasted several days. The dedication did. Solomon gets down on his knees. The Bible says he raises his hands. Solomon must have been Pentecostal. And he begins to pray. People are watching their king, their royal, dignified king, there in humility on his knees before God, hands raised. And he begins to pray. And he prays things like this they're in that position. Oh, God, accept this temple. And if people do wrong and they turn and they pray towards this temple and they pray towards your holy city, forgive them of their wrong. And if we go to battle and we lose and we figure out that we've missed you, let us confess our sins and look towards the temple and remember your goodness and forgive them. And whenever plagues and pestilence come to the people and they pray to you, hear them. And forgive them. And heal their land. And if an individual sins against you. And they have a change of heart. And they say we have done wickedly. And you turn, and they turn back to you. And they look to this temple. And they look to this city. Hear their prayers. And forgive them. And uphold their cause. And he finishes his prayer and said. Lord don't forget the promise. You gave my father David that his seed would sit on the throne forever. And when Solomon finished praying that beautiful, humble prayer before God, fire came down out of heaven. And the glory of the Lord filled that temple because he prayed this prayer, God, let us be a repentant people. And if we should stray from you, let us see the temple not as a beautiful architectural structure to be proud of that people will come from around the world to see, but let them look at that and see you, God. Let them see you in the temple and let their heart be melted. All he wanted was to make something on earth that was in honor to God that people would constantly be reminded there is a God and we've done wrong and we need his forgiveness. That's all he wanted fire swept down the glory filled the temple and solomon at the end of this these days of dedication went to sleep late one night at the conclusion of these ceremonies and in the night god appeared to solomon and he told him in this message he said i've heard your prayer And I just want to let you know I've chosen this place as my house of sacrifice. And God said, Furthermore, Solomon, tell the people this. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, if I command locusts to devour the land, and if I send pestilence among the people, then know this. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. And I will heal their land. We need a message of repentance today. Samuel assembles the people, preaches his sermon of repentance, and he says... This is what it means to truly repent. Now that's, that's the other side of this. We need the message of repentance, but we need people who understand what true repentance means. And Samuel said, if you're really serious, if you're really going to repent, the first, the first thing you need to do is get rid of the idols in your life. Are you listening to me, people? How miserable is your life? You trying to get Jesus to sell you a little salve? Or are you trying to get your heart and your life straightened out to where you're living in 24-hour misery? Seven days a week. Most of the days of the year? Repent! It's simple, just Repent! Bring those idols that are between you and God that keep you so fascinated and so separated and lay them at the altar and declare, I repent, I'm done living my own life. God, I want you. I need you. I'm selling out to you. And Samuel said, if you're serious people, get rid of your idols. Enough of this repenting and then going home and worshiping your idols again. Get rid of them. Repentance is a change of lifestyle. It's not just saying a sinner's prayer. It's not just shaking the preacher's hand. It's not just coming down and shedding a few tears at the altar. It's getting up and saying, I'm done with the way I used to be. I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I want something different from my life. I want joy unspeakable that's full of glory. I want abundant life through Jesus Christ. I want to wake up singing the praises of God instead of singing gloom and despair and agony on me. Read. And get it right with God. And put away the junk that's keeping you defeated. True repentance is more than just being sorry you got caught. Repentance is your commitment to quit your sins and do your best to live a life that honors God. Now, victory returns. And as the people are repenting, the Bible says, the Philistines hear what's going on, and they see all of Israel gathered at Mizpah, and they say, wouldn't this be a wonderful time to attack? They're all right there, and they're doing religious things, so they're not really aware of their surroundings. Let's get together and let's attack them. And Israel, their spies evidently recognize The Philistines are closing in on them. So the first thing they do is they say, Oh, Samuel, don't quit interceding. (laughs) Don't quit. Don't stop now. We need the Lord more than anything else. We need him now. Don't quit interceding. And this is what we read in that opening passage. he, He sent this confusion, this thunderous roar that the Philistines experienced and it it threw them into chaos and confusion and they were defeated before they were they even had a battle because God took care of it because people when you repent when you give yourself entirely to God your victories are going to start being won for you And it makes me wonder why people who keep losing all of their battles can't figure out that it starts with repentance and it goes to selling out to God and serving Him and Him only. And don't come and try and get a spiritual fix so you can make it through another week with your own agenda. Come and repent and take God on full time. Love Him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Everything within you, love Him. And watch the Philistines start falling around you. God will fight your battles for you. Victory will come. That's what Samuel said. He said, get rid of your idols, serve God only, and then victory will come to your life. Like the people that day who finally came to the point after all this sour experience with the ark and losing the ark and regaining the ark and scared of the ark and don't know the relationship with God. Is he mad at us? And what are we going to do next? Is he going to kill us? And all of this mass confusion, they finally woke up one day and said, enough is enough. It's time to come back to God. To every man and woman here today, you seem to be more losing more battles than you're ever winning to every man or woman who's grown cold in your relationship with God and the presence of God has moved away because you've been going out and involving yourself in things that God doesn't approve of. It's time to repent. I'll tell you, I'd love to see revival hit west side. But I think it's going to hit... We're going to be ready. It's going to hit when everybody of every color, every stripe, every persuasion here in every walk of life and every level of maturity, when every person is honest enough to get before God and just do some repenting. You say, I don't need to repent. Yes, you do. You've got to repent for being stubborn. If that's the only reason you've got... We just need to be broken before God. Search me, oh God. Search me, Holy Spirit. No, my thoughts today know where my problems are show me what i cannot see in myself that's what repentance is god knows me better than i know me and we go before god we repent and say god i'm trying to do my best i think i've done my best but i don't know i repent for my failures and then at the end of that passage as the philistines are defeated And Israel that had struggled under the oppression of the Philistines for too long finally began to sense the liberty in God that he brings by giving them the victory when they need it the most. Oh, doesn't it feel great to walk in victory? Doesn't it feel great to be free and free indeed? And after all of this, Samuel goes outside the town and he builds a memorial and he, a stone and he names the stone Ebenezer. And the word Ebenezer means thus far the Lord has helped us. You know, we need those Ebenezers to realize that when we were walking with him, the Lord was helping. We need those monuments to say, to that point in my life, I was doing all right. We need those pointers to encourage us to keep on the track. It was good when I was serving the Lord. It's when I strayed, it started getting bad. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. In other words, so far, so good. Don't blow it. We're not giving you A guaranteed insurance policy that one trip to the altar and everything's going to change in your life, you're going to have to stay in a humble state before God. Living every day in repentance towards Him and humility towards Him and realizing, God, on my best day, I'm nothing but a failure. But in You, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. Walking in that victory. Walking in that humility. You need... The intercessor. You need the one that is before the throne of God ever interceding for you. You need the one that you can call out on him when you hear the rumbles of the enemy. That you can say, oh, don't stop interceding. I can feel it coming. I need it now. Don't stop interceding. I know a lot of you people that you've you're, you're, you're got a good habit. Whenever you feel the rumblings of the war coming, you're on the phone and you're calling your prayer warriors. Say, pray. I need prayer. I'll tell you what, don't forget just to remind Jesus, the great intercessor, the great intercessor, Lord, don't quit interceding for me right now because I need you. I can pray for you. Be glad to pray for you. But you need to rest assured that your intercessor, the one who's before the throne of God, is the one that's really carrying the battle for you. You need to walk in true repentance. You need to give up the junk that's keeping you separated from God. Bow your heads.